If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Need to make a call? Look for a police call box. That's where you'll find Two on Who, the new Doctor Who podcast from Electric Surge. Two on Who is available wherever you listen to podcasts. You must learn to listen to the rebel and the rogue, or you will not be allowed to come with me to Alderaan. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman from Inglorious Trexperts in the 430 movie. And if you're a James Bond fan, you want to pick up my new book, Nobody Does It Better, the complete uncensored oral history of James Bond and Spy Mania. It's a hefty tome, and it's available now wherever you purchase books, audiobooks, and digital. Check it out, and I will renew your license to kill personally. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Experts. Mr. Barclay, everyone's still trying to figure out exactly how you did it. Well, it, it just occurred to me that I could set up a frequency harmonic between the deflector and the shield grid using the warp field generator as a power flow anti-attenuator, and that, of course, naturally created an amplification of the inherent energy output. Uh-huh. I see that. And welcome to another Zoom home edition of Inglorious <laughs> Trexperts. Darren, I can't believe we're, it's another week and we're still here. We're still here, Mark. We're still in the ether. You know, it used to be when you were self-isolating as a Star Trek fan, you didn't really have a choice. <laughs> it wasn't on purpose. <laughs> now it's mandatory. <laughs> so uh, anyway, we got a great week. You know, it's been a, a wonderful opportunity to uh, uh, get some guests who are normally too busy working to drop by the show, come by the studio. So we, we're getting them at home. Uh, returning uh, special guest, uh, you know him as the writer of Thor and X-Men First Class on TV. He's done such shows as uh, Lore and Surrey with the Fringe on Top and Black Sails. It's Ashley E. Miller coming back to the show. Hello, Ash. Thank you for having me again. Always. And again. Always. And uh, we have a wonderful, a wonderful uh, guest joining us uh, uh, he was the science consultant on Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and Voyager. He went on, he evolved much like an advanced life form uh, to go from science consultant to a writer producer on shows like Voyager and Enterprise. He created the show Mars for National Geographic. He's been a vital part as a producer and consultant on um, the great Cosmos series that uh, Seth McFarlane has executive produced, which was done for Fox and uh, Nat Geo and is just a phenomenal piece of television. It wasn't the original Carl Sagan one. He didn't work on that. He was a little young for that. But, yeah. the, uh, <laughs> but the, the, the new Cosmos. And of course, he is a co-executive producer now on the Orville, the best Star Trek show on television. So um, we're thrilled to have uh, Andre Bormanis, always full of great stories. Welcome. I haven't seen him in quite a while. Uh, it's good to see you. Welcome to uh, Inglorious Trexperts. You too. Thank you so much for having me back. It's great to see you guys. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, how uh, how are things? I'm going to start backwards. Uh, um, I'm going to ask you. This is a Benjamin Button question. How are things going on 
Orville, now that you're on Hulu, uh, obviously the um, pandemic has not been helpful, but up until that point, uh, uh, you know, that, uh, obviously uh, that's an no. exciting development. Yeah, up until that point, everything was going great. Um, you know, we're doing 11 episodes for the new season of The Orville. They're going to air on Hulu. Um, we started production around the end of October. And uh, unfortunately, we were forced into hiatus in mid-March, like pretty much every other show yeah. here in Hollywood and across the country, and I'm guessing across the world. Yeah. So, uh, you know, right now we're, uh, you know, production has been suspended until further notice. And uh, really nobody can, nobody can say when we might get back in front of the cameras. But uh, we will be back in front of the cameras. All of the scripts are written. There's and, a lot uh, of speculation. I, I mean, like, yeah. I can't, not a day goes by where somebody else is not sending me some dumb article from The Hollywood Reporter or from Deadline about when is production coming back? And it's like, nobody yeah. knows. And, you know, it's like, oh, did you read this? It's like, I don't need to read that to know. We don't know. <laughs> yeah, and that's, you know, it's frustrating. Obviously, we all wish we had a, you know, a date certain when we would be back in production and um, when, you know, this crisis, this healthcare crisis has passed, but of course nobody can say, you know, it, it, it's up to the virus. And, um, you know, people are cautiously optimistic that maybe by early June uh, here in Southern California, we'll start to open things up again. People will, you know, at least in some limited capacity, uh, you know, be going back to uh, going back to their jobs still probably practicing social distancing for a while. But as to when television production might resume, that's just, uh, it's really, really impossible to say. I, I think, I, again, I suspect in the next few weeks, we'll have a much better idea. I think the realistic answer to that question is as soon as it possibly can without anyone getting sued. I think, yeah, I think yeah. the, the producers, <laughs> the producers and the studios want to start as soon as they can, but right. they're, you know, keeping a, a, a very tight eye on what's going to happen. If you had pitched a story of this pandemic as a, as a writer in a room, would anybody have believed it? I mean, would, you, would they say, this is crazy, this is, this is not... You know, I think this particular version of that story um, was, uh, was a surprise to everybody. But pandemics are common throughout history. And in fact, every, every president since Ronald Reagan has had to deal with a, a pandemic of one kind or another. Nothing as severe as what we're dealing with today in terms of its uh, how quickly it spread and, and how quickly it's been uh, lethal. But, you know, Ronald Reagan had the, the AIDS epidemic. Um, Clinton was also dealing with that. Uh, there was SARS and MERS and then Ebola five or six years ago. I remember when people were worried that uh, Ebola was um, uh, breaking out in Africa and that a couple of people here in the United States uh, were diagnosed. And, um, you know, these things happen and they happen with, with some regularity. So we can't say that it was unexpected. Certainly the severity and the novelty of this particular virus uh, was unexpected. And, uh, you know, nobody can be blamed for, I think, um, not recognizing how bad this would get so quickly but the fact that uh, the fact that it happened shouldn't surprise anybody. But you know, people did warn us. Somebody like Bill Gates, you know, has been oh, yeah. uh, uh, you know, screaming about this for a long time, and you know, sort of labeled as Cassandras, or you know, that they're trying to um, yeah. uh, you know stir up uh, uh, fear uh, when it's an. But you know, they turn out exactly right. You know, people are just 
refuse to uh, face the facts. And like you said, those who forget the past are condemned to relive it. You know, now everybody's fascinated by the uh, Spanish flu of 1918. Right. But uh, if you'd ask somebody right. about the Spanish flu of 1918 a year ago, they chances are they never heard of it. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, Honestly, I think the most surprising thing about it is that uh, the, ap the apocalypse seems to consist of sitting around watching Tiger King. <laughs> no one saw that. that coming. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, yeah. Everybody was so focused on the zombie apocalypse, they they missed out on uh, on the tiger. Carol Baskin. That's right. So, uh, you know, let's talk because obviously science is very much in the news and the importance of science. Uh, uh, and uh, obviously, there's a group of people that um, don't, you know, uh, clearly don't value science, um, which is. Uh, 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 some of us find kind of unfathomable, uh, particularly Star Trek yeah. is always a franchise that has extolled the value of science. So I'd love to talk about how you first got involved, obviously, back in the Halicon days of Star Trek The Next Generation, and kind of right. what your role was and what science's role was in Star Trek. Because, of course, we're dealing with solar starfish and we're dealing with... Obviously, that was during Noreen's tenure, but, you know, all kinds of crazy things that seem absurd, you know, Beverly in a static warp bubble in which the crew of the Enterprise <laughs> is disappearing. But yet, Star Trek still tried to be, should I say, realistic. So tell us a little yeah. bit about what your role was and how you got involved. Yeah, you know, I started in uh, May of 1993. I was hired to be the science consultant on the final season of Star Trek The Next Generation. And I just finished a master's degree in uh, science, technology, and public policy at the George Washington University. Uh, I had a NASA fellowship to study there. And so did a lot of work with people involved in the space program, had a lot of familiarity with, you know, with NASA and its programs. Uh, as an undergraduate, I studied physics and astronomy at the University of Arizona, did some graduate work in physics uh, while I was there, and worked on a couple of NASA grants studying um, meteorites and doing infrared astronomy and some things of that nature. So I had a, I had a pretty good general, you know, uh, education in the sciences and had, uh, had a, a strong interest in, in uh, science fiction and, and literature as well, and had an ambition to maybe try to write a Star Trek spec script, pitch some stories. So in the, in the late eighties, I wrote a next generation spec script when they were still taking, um, unsolicited scripts from uh, anybody who was willing to put in the time and the effort to write, you know, a 60 page teleplay. And I got a nice sort of thanks, but no thanks, um, which was enough encouragement for me to want to try again. And I found an agent here in Los Angeles, a little small boutique agency um, who was interested in representing me. And she said, Oh, well, let me, let me see if I can get you a pitch meeting over there at Star Trek. You know, she liked my spec scripts and, you know, so she was in the process of trying to trying to set up a pitch meeting when she found out that they needed a new science consultant because the guy who'd been doing it, Naren Shankar, had been promoted to the writing staff and was no longer interested in, you know, in being the science guy there. And so as luck would have it, you know, I met with uh, Jerry Taylor and she and I kind of hit it off. She was a supervising producer and a writer on uh, Next Gen and creator of Voyager. And met the guys, you know, um, Ira Bear, Brandon Braga, Ron Moore, Michael Piller, uh, Renee Echeverria, um, which was great, amazing. And then Michael Piller gave me an audition script. He had written a, a first or second draft of an episode of Deep Space Nine. And he said, I want you to read this. 
and write up some technical notes for me. He gave me some copy of Narain's tech notes, you know, the format that Narain used. So uh, I was, again, living in Washington, D.C., you know, when this happened and had flown out to Los Angeles for a meeting. I'd actually had a meeting in Tucson, a science meeting, planetary science conference, where I happened to meet Freeman Dyson, of all people. <laughs> but at any rate, I grew up in Phoenix, so I went to my folks' house, got one of, you know, got my mom's car, drove out to L.A., had my meeting, spent the night, drove back to Phoenix the next day, and um, read Michael's script, went to the library, you know, this is pre-internet, of course, did some research, and I wrote up about nine pages of technical notes for Michael, faxed them over to the Star Trek office, and a couple of weeks later, they said, you've got the job if you want it. And I said, great. And they literally needed me to start to the week that I finished my uh, NASA fellowship wow. at George Washington University. So in May of 1993, I loaded up the truck and I drove from Washington, D.C. to L.A. And I've been here ever since. <laughs> nice. And how was that experience? Because obviously Star Trek, you know, does value science and, and, and in a, to a certain extent is steep in real science, there's that mumbo yeah. science of techno babble, uh, trying yes. to make things sound right. And how do you straddle that line between good storytelling and authentic right. science, techno babble? The enterprise computer system is controlled by three primary main processor cores, cross-linked with redundant Mellicourt's Ramistat, 14 kiloquad interface modules. The core element is based on an FTL nanoprocessor with 25 bilateral kilolactrals, with 20 of those being slaved into the primary Heisenfram terminal. Now, you do know what a bilateral kilolactral is. Well, of course I do, human. I am not stupid. No, of course not. This is the isopalavial interface which controls the main ferromantle drive unit. Don't touch that. You'll blow up the entire ferromantle drive. Oh, what? what is, wait. Uh... Yeah, there's a certain art to that. Uh, and I would say that, you know, we have to go back to the original Star Trek to understand, you know, what, what the role of a science consultant on the show is. And basically the idea behind it is, you know, when Gene created the original Star Trek back in 1964, he wanted to do a television show that would appeal to adults. A lot of the stuff, a lot of the science fiction that had been on television up to that time, uh, at least the space oriented stuff was, you know, sort of Captain Video, you know, Buck Rogers, uh, Flash Gordon style shows. and he wanted something that aimed a little higher. And he knew that in order for an adult audience to be attracted to a show like this, that you had to ground it in some sense of reality. You had to make sure that for that one hour that people are watching your TV show, they can believe that they're on a spaceship hundreds of years in the future, something so advanced that it can travel between the stars to go from solar system to solar system on a weekly basis. So he sat down with scientists and engineers from the RAND Corporation, from JPL, uh, you know, from some of the aerospace contractors who were working for NASA here in, the, here in Southern California. You know, there were a lot of Southern California companies involved in building the, uh, you know, the Apollo Saturn V system. And so he asked them, you know, what would we, what would we have to build? What would we have to create, invent, discover in the next couple of hundred years in order to make some kind of starship like the one I'm imagining possible. And they said, well, gosh, you know, it's not going to be chemically fueled. You're not going to burn, you know, liquid oxygen and hydrogen. That's not going to give you nearly enough energy. You're going to have to find a way around Einstein's 
you know, special theory of relativity, which says that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. But the idea of warping space was already something that people talked about in general relativity and other scientific circles. And so, uh, you know, by picking their brains and modeling his uh, fictional starship on a real naval vessel, having a bridge and a sick bay and crew quarters and, and thinking through all of the different, you know, what will people need in the future to make this possible? He came up with his, uh, you know, starship enterprise. And of course, dilithium crystals and using matter-antimatter reactions to warp space, the transporter, those things are largely fictional. And that's, that's the conceit that he felt the audience would buy if the rest of it seemed credible. And, you know, he got a lot of pushback from people at NBC uh, when he was designing the ship with uh, Matt Jeffries, who was an amazing, you know, aviator, aviation artist, and so forth. And, uh, you know, they really thought out, okay, we're going to have a bridge on this ship. You know, they came up, you know, went through hundreds of different possible designs, came up with the saucer section and the nacelles and the engineering section. And Gene was liking that. Where are we going to put the bridge? Oh, on the top of the ship. It's going to be round. It's going to have a central view screen. We have to have the different stations, the captain, you know. And, and the NBC executives were like, why are you spending all this time and money designing these sets? You know, put some lights, you know, in a room and, you know, and have a couple of buttons people can press and there's, there's your ship. And Roddenberry's like, no, no, you can't do it that way. It has to be a credible design. It has to be something that people watch on TV every week and say, oh, yeah, wow, that looks like something that someday, you know, human ingenuity could, 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 uh, could create. That so, it, you know, a certain reality, but there were those fictional elements. And then when, you know, when... Gene talked about going from, you know, Earth to, you know, the Rigel system or some other, you know, destination. Very much aware that, oh, okay, average distance between stars in this part of the Milky Way galaxy is four or five light years. Um, the ship will, will patrol the Milky Way galaxy. It's not going to go beyond the Milky Way. Hundreds of billions of stars in the Milky Way. Plenty of, plenty of places for us to explore. Uh, he tried to make sure that terrestrial planets were, were, you know, properly, um, you know, depicted on the show so that when we beam down to explore some world, you knew it had an atmosphere, oxygen, nitrogen, whatever. So again, those are all real elements. Those are things we would expect to find out in orbiting other stars in the Milky Way. And that's another way to ground the stories in a kind of reality. He never wanted to violate some known principle of physics or suggest that oh, you know, a, a, a planet that's the size of the Earth could have an underground civilization in the planet's core. You know, he never went to those kinds of fantastic elements. And we were always very, you know, conscious of that when I was working on the show, that we might encounter unusual spatial phenomena. You know, we might, we might create something like a warp bubble, giving the, the technology of, you know, warp drive and so forth. But... We didn't want to do anything that seemed so far afield that it would feel like fantasy as opposed to science fiction. Once or twice, I think we probably violated that, <laughs> that uh, principle in a couple of our stories. But for the most part, we tried to keep it on the straight and narrow. And I was always trying to find interesting new discoveries, recent discoveries in astronomy and space science that could be folded into stories. 
we used uh, something called a binary pulsar in an episode of Voyager called Scientific Method that was written by Lisa Klink. You know, she called me and said, hey, you know, I need to stop the ship and have Janeway investigate some cool astronomical phenomenon, you know, that would be interesting enough to her that she'd want to actually stop the ship, you know, for a few days and observe this thing. I said, oh, you know, I've been reading about these binary pulsars, you know, neutron stars that are orbiting each other. And they eventually, because they're shedding gravitational energy through gravitational waves, will collide and form a black hole. I'm like, I think if I were Janeway, I'd love to stop and watch that happen. You know? <laughs> so that's a real thing. Symbiogenesis was an idea, a real idea from biology that we put into a story uh, with the character Tuvix. You know, so that was also, you know, that happens on a microscopic level. We said, what if it happened on a macroscopic level? That I think is a fair stretch in science fiction. Um, so we, we uh, you know, we used ideas from real science all the time as springboards for stories or elements of stories in the show. And again, I think that helped ground it in a certain believability that, um, you know, that allowed us to tell, you know, the, the, the morality tales that we, that we were really trying to tell, you know, to do the social commentary that the show was so well known for. Yeah, I but, love the fact that you mentioned that, um, Gene hired his cousin, Harvey Lynn, at oh, the yeah, yeah. company. In right. classic Gene fashion, he hired a relative. But um, <laughs> the thing that was so brilliant about that was, as you said, I mean, up until then, rocket ships were often, you know, basically V2 rockets on TV shown going backwards were spaceships. Gene yeah, really right. wanted to depict a realistic world of the future. And so he had, uh, you know, what is the future of medicine going to be? And he said diagnostic beds and things that non-invasive yes. medical equipment. And uh, there will be giant computer brains that will be able to answer questions via audio about the universe and where we're going and, and all the information. It is so forward thinking and it's amazing uh, you know, everything down and people said, you know, to the, the communicator with the, being the progenitor of the cell phone. And, and that's because right. Gene took the time to craft a show that wasn't just fantasy, but truly put the science in science fiction, which is one of the reasons I think that it endures all these years yes. later. Um, sorry, I think I interrupted you, uh, Darren. I, no, I just, not at all. No, very well said. I, I just had a question uh, related to how you and the writers would uh, interact. I mean, obviously, in that instance, they had a need for some specific kind of thing uh, yes. for you to suggest that would uh, help the characters uh, respond to it or, or give them uh, motivation to, you know, go search out something. Um, but also, I'm imagining, and correct me if if I'm mistaken, that your uh, your role was to also help take these scientific ideas and. I'm not going to say dumb them down, but make them a little more clear for the characters to relay for the audience to understand. Um, yeah, I did. I, I definitely, you know, um, did that when we got to the point of actual writing scripts, you know, I would, I would receive scripts and uh, pages from scripts on pretty much a daily basis while we were in production. And, and sometimes I would see the word tech in parentheses. And that was my right. cue to fill in the technical language because the writer either didn't feel confident that they could, you know, come up with the right terminology or they wanted something better than what they had thought of, you know. And so it wasn't so much a question of dumbing down. It was a question of, of brevity more than anything right. else, because you really can't stop in the middle of a story 
to explain a scientific concept. You have to try to convey it uh, as quickly and as sort of descriptively as possible. Um, and also keep it natural, I imagine. Yeah, and you know, you never want to stop for exposition. You know, and ideally in a story, when a character stops to explain something, kind of brings the story to a halt. So you minimize that as much as possible. And the other thing that you have to remember is, is um, you know, you've got actors who are not scientists who are playing these characters, and they have to feel comfortable uh, saying the words. <laughs> right. Words that they may not understand, even if they're real, you know, some real piece of technical language. I remember I got a note from Michael Piller once. Um, I'd uh, written some technical notes for a Deep Space Nine script, and Michael sent them back to me. And he had circled a couple of things and wrote the letters NGE. I'm like, NGE, I wonder what that means. I, I didn't know what that meant. And so I called Jerry Taylor and I said, hey, Jerry, I, I, I got some notes back from Michael and he circled some things that I suggested and wrote NGE. What does that mean? And she said, oh, that means not good enough. And I'm like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he doesn't like what I came up with here. So I, I started to come up with some alternatives and I realized when I, when I was looking at it, um, the story involved a planet that we beamed down to that had some kind of a field that was interfering with the operation of our equipment. So our phasers weren't working, our tricorders weren't working, our communicators weren't working. And so my first impulse, of course, is to always go for something real. What, what, what kind of a thing could happen on a planet that would interfere with electronic devices, even devices that are shielded against radiation and so forth. And I thought, well, if this planet had a particularly strong magnetic field and it oscillated for some reason having to do with the, you know, the geophysics of the planet's core or whatever, maybe that would muck up, you know, the electronics of, uh, of our devices. So Chief O'Brien has to speculate about what's going on. And, he's, and I came up with a line to the effect of, you know, I, I believe there is a rapidly fluctuating electromagnetic field disturbance, well, you know, something like that. Right. And, and poor Colin Meany had to say this like seven or eight times in the script as it was written, right? So I'm looking at this and I realize, oh, yeah, that's, that's a mouthful. And, and, you know, it really kind of drags the scene down every time he says it. So I thought, and I thought, you know, on the original Star Trek, we talked about the electronic systems on the ship, duotronics, remember? Right. Daystrom, right? M5, yeah. the first multitronic system. Right. Oh, we've got duotronics. What if we had a duonetic field? Now, it turns out that this was not a natural phenomenon at all. It was artificial, but the, you know, the, the characters in the audience doesn't know that at the beginning. So I, I coined the term duonetic field. So all Colomini had to remember was duonetic. Oh, okay, duonetic, duonetic. All right. Yeah, there's a duonetic field that it seems to be interfering with our... So that was like, oh, okay, fictional, but it, it, you know, it built on established Trek terminology, right? Sure. And I remember meeting... Um, <laughs> I remember meeting Terry Farrell for the first time. Can I ask you a about rap that? Party. Yeah, yeah, a rap party for uh, DS9. And it might have been the first rap party I'd ever been to. So that was already a little kind of a heady experience. And then right. uh, I see her standing by herself at some point and decided, you know, shyly to walk up to her and introduce myself. You know, she's very tall, very beautiful. 
And, um, and I said, Miss Pearl, hi, I'm Andre Borman. Oh, hi, how are you? What do you do on the show? And I said, well, I have to apologize. I'm actually the, the science consultant. I'm, a, I'm the guy who puts all that techno babble into your dialogue. And she looks at me like, you know, in mock horror, grabs me by the lapels, almost lifts me off my feet and starts screaming like, you effing hell. <laughs> and then she put me down and she laughed. Oh, I'm just kidding. And she said, you know, I enjoy the character. I really like the show, of course. And she said, but one thing, if you could keep in mind, she said, well, I'm doing a scene and I'm just talking to the computer. Feel free to put all the techno babble you want in my dialogue. I don't care. I can memorize it. You know, it, it's not that hard for me, but if I'm in a scene with other characters and I've got to think what's going on with those characters, I got to hit my mark. What's my emotional state? What's their emotional state? What's the shape of the scene? Well, then if there's a lot of techno babble in my dialogue, I'm, I'm so focused on trying to remember that I kind of lose my character a little. So if you wouldn't mind, if it's possible, you know, could you kind of be careful in those scenes? And that, that was like one of the best pieces of advice, pieces of advice I'd gotten in working on the show is, yeah, you know, remember the, the actors who are playing these characters are not technical people, you know, and you got to be cognizant of that. And, um, you know, and that's part of the art of doing, you know, doing a job like that is recognizing that, you know, there are certain rules in storytelling. There are certain things that actors need in order to play their characters. And you have to take that into consideration when you're coming up even with technical dialogue. Sure. Well, you know, a lot of times you talk about the techno babble. Um, it's explaining a spatial anomaly or a scientific mm -hmm. phenomena. But you alluded to the fact that sometimes even for you, making something sound credible is a challenge. And specifically, I look at seven season episodes like Genesis, where yes. uh, the crew is turned into Neanderthals, or uh, yes. Relics, where we, the crew is suddenly turned into their childhood doppelgangers. How, yeah. when you get something like that, I mean, do you just pull your hair out? I mean, how does, uh, or how yeah, challenging? You know, it's, um, it's a, you know, at first it was like, yeah, that's kind of a tough pill to swallow. But there were only a few times when I tried to dissuade them uh, from doing a particular storyline. There was one storyline in a, in a treatment for an episode that involved Captain Picard going on some kind of a vacation to a Class M planet. And he was going to ride some sort of a special kayak down a lava flow into the core of the planet. And, you know, I said, well, this sounds a little Jules Verne to me. It seems like a very hard sell. I think our audience is probably going to question this. Um, uh, you know, a, a class M planet is probably about 8,000 miles, you know, in diameter on average. And you really expect Picard to go through 4,000 miles deep into this planet's core and et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, maybe we could come up with an alternative. And they, they quickly agree. With something like Genesis, um, you know, they were committed to that story. Brandon Braga, you know, he loved, he loved to do these haunted house stories, uh, you know, where you turn the ship into, uh, you know, into this sort of house of horrors. And the one thread, the one sort of credible thread of science that we were able to hang that story on was this idea of there are segments in our DNA called introns. And back when we did that episode, way back in 1993-94, a lot of people just thought that this was kind of, introns were kind of junk DNA left over from earlier in, uh, in our evolution as a species. Um, 
pieces of genetic material that were there in our genome, but no longer coded for proteins. They, they just didn't function anymore, but wasn't worth the trouble of getting rid of them, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint. And I think there might be some differences of opinion about what introns really are. I think people are probably thinking, you know, probably not junk DNA. Maybe it has some other function. Maybe it, you know, gets activated under certain circumstances, but whatever the case, that was the idea at the time. And so we came up with this idea that some virus that had been uh, brought aboard the ship was activating our introns and turning us into the earlier ancestors uh, of our, of our evolutionary trees. And okay. <laughs> that's uh, an extremely unlikely path for a could virus happen. to take. <laughs> The, 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 you know, the, the massive transformations in physiology that we witnessed in the course of that episode would almost certainly kill anybody who was subjected to it. And then there was the awkward question of, okay, let's say that Commander Riker is turned into an Australopithecine. Well, by the end of the episode, he's Commander Riker again. How did he get all of his memories and experiences back? How did he know how to talk? And Australopithecine had a brain about a quarter the size of a human brain even if you could restore him. <laughs> how, how, how does he remember anything? <laughs> <You know? laughs> He'd feel like a, a blithering baby, I would think, you know? <laughs> but that's the kind of stuff that we swept under the rug if we felt that, you know, this is such a fun episode. The actors are gonna get a kick out of doing this. It's gonna be scary, it's gonna be cool. We can get away with those once in a blue moon. And, uh, you know, I don't think it, hurt the overall reception of the series or its longevity and so forth that every once in a while we did something a little crazy like that. And at least you didn't have to do science notes on Spock's brain. So, you know, that, that would have been, that could have been challenging. That would have been challenging, but maybe a little bit easier until the end, you know, where he's <laughs> actually restoring his brain, which, uh, you know, I can believe maybe you could take it out. And I really doubtful you could put it back in, but, you know, <laughs> that was a bad episode for a lot of other reasons, I think. Yeah, well, but but immensely enjoyable in other ways. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, brain and, and brain, then, what is brain? <laughs> did you find Deep Space Nine as, um, as challenging? Because there was a lot less science and a lot less technobabble. It was a lot more uh, yeah. character-centric. No, I, I would say that I probably during during the time we were doing both shows, uh, you know, initially uh, Next Gen and DS9 and the DS9 and Voyager, I would probably, I would say I spent two thirds to three quarters of my time on Next Gen or Voyager and maybe one third to a quarter on DS9. Because that was very much more a, a character driven show, a more sort of political dynamic, social, you know, dynamic kind of a show. Um, the science officer character was not as critical to the stories, typically. I mean, there were times when, when of course, Dax was, and there were some really interesting um, science fiction premises in, in a lot of those stories. But yeah, for the most part, uh, I had a lot less work to do on DS9 scripts than on Voyager or Next Generation scripts. And that was a conscious decision on the part of Ira Bear and Michael Piller and Rick Berman uh, to make that show more sort of about the politics of this space station that finds itself at the intersection of these you know, tense um, uh, alien uh, conflict. Do you have a, a favorite uh, contribution that you did uh, during those days that you were a uh, the, the science consultant? Do you have one thing that stands out? 
Oh, you know, uh, yeah, I love bringing the binary pulsars into uh, into that Voyager episode. Um, um, I, I did a fair amount of work on a DS9 episode that involved a comet as a prophecy from the Bajorans. And uh, Bradley Thompson and David Weddle, who wrote that episode, uh, they called me as they were developing the story and said, hey, we've got this comet that plays a major role in, this, in the story. And we kind of know what a comet is, but, you know, how big is a typical comet and how fast do they move and what are they made of and when does that tail and stuff form? And, and that was a lot of fun to work with those guys and really kind of develop that tension between the mythology of comets and the real science of comets and to see that played out in the story where you have you know, a very advanced technological um, civilization that still has these deep-seated religious beliefs, you know. Sure. The DS9 wormhole stuff was kind of interesting, you know. Um, so, yeah, I'd say that, um, you know, those those kind of stand out. Um, you know, coming up with a term like the duenetic field. Also, I came up with um, something that I think Narain Shankar really loved, biomimetic gel. Mm. And they love that term. Mm. And I forget exactly where we used that and what, what episode we first introduced that. It was like a shipment of biomimetic gel. And I started to see it crop up in, in, in scripts, you know, <laughs> in later years. Uh, I also had a, a, a kind of a funny story with um, doing an episode of Deep Space Nine where we had to come up with some highly unstable uh, chemical, kind of a, you know, a super nitroglycerin. And I didn't want to use anything that was real and familiar right. because then you're dealing with the question of, well, you know, how much do you really need to blow something up or blah, blah, blah. So I came up with a, a fictional unstable compound called chemocyte. And um, I got a call from set a few weeks later when that script was in production from Max Grodencheck and Max was very concerned. He called me and Andre, Andre, it's Max. Oh, Max, hey, how are you doing? So I got, I got the script, John. I got, I got this word here and I didn't see in the pronunciation guy. Is it, is it chemocyte or is it chemocyte? I said, oh, it's chemocyte, chemocyte. Oh, oh thanks, thanks. And obviously I made it up. He could have said it whatever <laughs> right, it right, right. I didn't like, I didn't like chemocyte. It sounded too much like chemical. Wow. So I said, oh, it's chemocyte. <laughs> so, so, so I got a I question say, for you, Andre. A lot of, you know, the, the cast and the crew of those shows were just uniformly terrific people. And, uh, you know, I didn't get too much opportunity to interact with the actors or be on set. But when I did see them and hang out with them and finally, you know, got to do conventions and hang out with them a little more and become friends with like Max and John Billingsley from Enterprise and some of the other actors, Tim, you know, Tim Russ on Voyager, we see each other, you know, fairly regularly. And I got to say, I mean, it's just what a uniformly great bunch of people. I'd say my experience of just having those relationships and working with those people and the writers I worked with, you know, uniformly just terrific, you know, Brandon and Ron Moore. And I still write with Brandon 27 years later now, wow. Brandon and I are writing partners on the Orville. We write all wow. of our scripts together, which has been great. You know, we did very little writing together on, uh, on Star Trek until enterprise. But even then I mostly wrote my own enterprise scripts, you know, sometimes right. collaborated, but mostly, you know, wrote on my own for most of, uh, most of the shows that I've worked on. So, I really enjoy the collaboration. That's that's the uh, the thing that stays with me. I'd say. Ash, you had a question. I I do, and I'm gonna 
caveat this by saying that there is an excellent chance that um, we were talking about Genesis and uh, and people devolving uh, into earlier forms of uh, of human life, uh, earlier forms of human life, savages, savages yeah. running around a background of my house. So if there's a sudden explosion of activity and noise and animalistic savage sounds, it's just my children. Um, <laughs> and my wife has a taser, a trank gun, a net, she'll handle it. Um, so, okay, uh, you know, clearly, you know, you're a guy who, who, you don't just love your Star Trek. You love your science. I am guessing that you love science fiction in all its forms. So let's say for the sake of the argument that you are stranded on a desert island and yes. you can only bring three science fiction novels with you. Hard oh. science fiction novels, right? Like things that are like really great science fiction, like not just science fantasy or right. whatever, but things that meet your definition of it. What would those three books be? Oh my, that's that's a tough spot. That's a tough spot. Um, probably, man, if I had to pick just three, I'm trying to, you know, the things that stood out in my mind when I was growing up and reading a lot of science fiction, and if you want hard science fiction, Rendezvous with Rama. Okay. D. Clark. Starman Jones, Robert A. Heinlein. Um, and, you know, my friend, um, Greg Benford, um, <laughs> wrote a great novel about messages from the future arriving from the past on tachyon beams. Yes. And I'm blanking on the title now. And I'll tell you, I, I told Greg, what I really liked about that novel is that the characters were as interesting in the as the science, and the science was really, really interesting. I feel like that was called Timescape. Um, Timescape. I believe that's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, I feel like uh, John Carpenter ripped it off in Prince of Darkness. When, oh, uh, I never saw the messages from the future and all that stuff. But no, that's a great book, man. I read that when I was. Yeah. But it wasn't a yeah, pile of green ooze in Timescape. It wasn't a green ooze that was the devil. But, uh... <laughs> you know, Greg told me once that Leonardo DiCaprio had optioned it for a screenplay. I, I wish that that movie had been made. So maybe I'm wrong about. But it. but you know, Appian <laughs> Way has like optioned half the books ever written. You know, right. and hasn't made them. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, really, oh, I just got yeah. a, a project option by Appian Way. I'm like, oh, okay, well, good luck with that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Part of the reason why I asked I know a lot of people who make a good living on options on screenplays <laughs> that they write that never get produced. So, never get you know. made. Exactly. I'm living yeah. proof. Um, no, I, oh. uh, I, the reason why I ask you is because there was that conversation before, other than I just kind of wanted to know. Um, there was the conversation before about, you know, people, the writers on the shows kind of writing in the word tech yeah. right yeah. and just saying I'm, I'm pushing this off on you and um, I, I worked with Robert Wolf on Andromeda and we were banned oh, right. yeah. from using the word tech and yeah. uh, it, which I think was probably a pretty good rule but, but my question to you is ab about that um, I find like in my favorite science fiction novels right my favorite hard science fiction um, the, the scientific concepts right the scientific problem um, is the thing that creates the rules from which the drama emerges, right? Like, even if it's yeah. a short story, like Alfred Bester, The Cold Equations, right? So um, yeah. you've only got so much fuel and you've got so much mass on your ship and you have a stowaway, so how do you get everybody home alive? You don't. You get rid of the, uh, the, the stowaway. Um, yeah. 
in, in your experience working on, on Star Trek, were there really great examples of the show just taking um, just really great graspable scientific concepts and just transforming those into drama? Hmm. Wow, interesting question. I think that, you know, I would not necessarily classify this as hard science fiction in the same way that Rendezvous with Rom or Starman Jones or Timescape is. But that episode that we did on Voyager, Tuvix, mm -hmm. was based on the idea of symbiogenesis. And that's a theory that Lynn Margulis developed way back in the late 50s, early 50s, 60s, I think, to explain, among other things, the fact that mitochondrial DNA, you know, the mitochondria, the little the little batteries that are in all of our cells that provide energy to the cell. They have their own distinctive DNA mm -hmm. than the large cell that they inhabit. And that was always a bit of a puzzle. You get mitochondrial DNA from your mother, but there's no trace of DNA from your father in the mitochondrial stuff. And she developed this idea that, you know, could be that billions of years in the past when everything was single-celled organisms in our biosphere, that there might have been certain bacteria that ingested smaller bacteria, but didn't digest them. That those smaller bacteria ended up developing a symbiotic relationship with the larger host. Mm. And maybe that's how structures like mitochondria evolved. Maybe that's why they have their own distinctive DNA. And Ken Biller, who wrote that episode, happened to be reading uh, an interview with Lynn Margulis, some magazine, and he said, wow, that sounds like a really cool idea for a story. So he called me and he said, hey, you know, what do you think about this? And, how, you know, here's my idea. We're going to beam down to a planet where symbiogenesis is kind of the major engine of evolution on this planet. We're going to come back with some plant samples. And it's going to fuse two of our characters in the same way that these, you know, precursors to mitochondria were fused into these larger cells, maybe as a form of ingestion that then took up this symbiotic relationship. And I thought, wow, well, that sounds kind of cool. I, I would run with that. Now, again, the, the, the cheat or the conceit, if you want to be a little more generous about it, is that we don't know if it would work that way on a macroscopic level. It doesn't, you know, an organism the size of you know, a human being getting absorbed by something even bigger and then taking up the symbiotic relationship. Uh, you know, maybe, but the way that Ken crafted that story, I thought you could believe that a mechanism like symbiogenesis could lead to this fusion, you know, combined with a transporter accident. Of course, that's our magic technology. That's the little bit, bit of magic dust we had to sprinkle onto the science in this story. But I guarantee you that there was no other show in television prior to that episode of Star Trek Voyager, no other one-hour drama that, it, that told the audience about symbiogenesis. <laughs> we actually did have a scene in the briefing room with the doctor that uh, we actually got to, you know, to lay out a little bit of exposition about this scientific idea of symbiogenesis to uh, explain what happened to Tuvok and Neelix when they beamed up uh, you know, from this planet and fused. And of course, as soon as they step out of the transporter chamber, they're like, oh my God, what revert, we got to send, you know, we, we, we don't know how to reverse it. Yeah. Well, and after, you know, 
a few weeks as Tuvix, Tuvix is happy being Tuvix. And then we figure out how to separate them. That created this extraordinary conflict for Janeway. It's like, I'm the captain of this ship. I've lost two crew members. Is it my duty as a captain to rescue those two crew members if I can? Or is it my responsibility to respect this new life form? And, you know, that's something that as a Federation, you know, officer, you have to, you know, yeah. um, you can't callously disregard another sentient being. That, I thought, was a great moral dilemma. And that was, I think, a great example of character drama. And that scene, you know, where she forces Tuvix into the transporter at the point of a phaser, amazing, amazing. Yeah, it's really funny that you say that because Tuvix, if you read the TV God logline, sounds mm -hmm. absurd, right? It sounds yeah. absurd. It's ridiculous. It, it's certainly one of the best episodes of Voyager, you know, yeah. um, and that comes from this really thought out MacGuffin, but because ultimately it's a character story. And it's funny because yes. I compare that to something like on Next Generation, like Realm of Fear, which is also an absurd mm -hmm. thing, which doesn't work to me, the, you know, in the yeah. way that Tuvix does, because at its heart, yeah. you, you have all this grounded science to an extent in, in, in right. Tuvix, but at the heart, it's a character story. And that character story yeah. really works. Where Realm of Fear was only a high concept, you know, uh, there are creatures in the transporter as opposed to right. starting with a character story. Um, but yeah. it's so interesting how um, you can take science, no matter how absurd the premise, and make it feel grounded and real um, yeah. when, you know, obviously it's such an outrageous, outlandish concept. Well, but look at our world. You know, this is another thing that Star Trek taught me, that being, you know, the science consultant for so many years really... Uh, you know, open my eyes to is stretching my imagination. You know, whenever I would get a story or a script, you know, my first impulse was always find the real thing in science that makes this work. And if I couldn't do that, then it's like, well, what real thing in science can I kind of stretch a little bit? And initially I was kind of reluctant to do that, but the longer we went on, the more I thought, you know, we live in a world that is unrecognizable to the world that people just a hundred years ago lived in. Look at the miraculous technologies we have, let's say this is 1995, compared to what people were familiar with in 1895. In another episode of Next Gen that we did, that I thought, eh, a little bit of a push here, um, got a distress call from a planet that was experienced the, experiencing this um, uh, devastating um, uh, seismic activity, uh, volcanic eruptions, continents, you know, crumbling. And, and it turns out the core of the planet was cooling at a rapid rate. And they called in the enterprise to try to reheat the core of the planet. And I'm like, okay, problem here. <laughs> it's a class M planet, 8,000, whatever miles across iron nickel core, you know, the mass of that core, uh, there's this thing in physics we talk about called thermal inertia. Uh, how are you going to raise the temperature of the core of a planet? even a few degrees um, uh, with, with, with just a single starship. You know, the amount of energy involved is insane. But then I thought about the fact that, you know what? There are these things called nuclear chain reactions. If you have a nuclear pile, you know, a pile of uranium, some control rods and whatever else is in there, and you introduce a micro, 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 microgram of invisible subatomic particles called neutrons, you will initiate a chain reaction that will take that huge pile of metal 
and over the course of a couple of hours raise its temperature hundreds of degrees. That would have seemed absurd to somebody as, as late as 1935, 1940, right? That's crazy. Invisible particles, you know, can raise the temperature of a block of metal that's as dense as lead by hundreds of degrees in just a few hours. That's a nuclear chain reaction. So Rick Sternbach and Michael Kuda had said in the Star Trek technical manual that the uh, phaser beams are kind of like plasma weapons built around a fictional particle called the nadion. And so I said, all right, I'm going to stipulate that the nadions have this property that they will behave like neutrons in a nuclear pile in the core of a planet, a class M planet, or at least this particular class M planet. So all we had to do... This is like the end of the Rooster Crows at midnight. Yeah. Andre there, come in. We have, Houston, we have a problem. Uh, he was just about to tell us the whole thing. I know, there he goes. He's gone. And he's gone. Wait, he's gone. Wait, I, I hear him now. Okay, hang on. Okay, he's coming back. He's coming through now, Cog. There I am. There okay, we are. Okay, fantastic. So we, we were going to ask you to finish the story when you froze up there. And then yeah, I want to transition really briefly before we wrap up, you know, this amazing um, uh, jump that you went from science consultant to a, you know, writer-producer and, and yeah. talk about how that happened um, yeah. and, 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 and the satisfaction that gives you on a whole nother level. Uh, so I'll let you continue before we had the, 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 the $6 million man accident and you start breaking up. <laughs> He's breaking up. He's breaking up. Yeah, so the idea was that, okay, how are we going to reheat the core of this massive planet in, uh, you know, in the matter of a few hours or a few days? Well, I modeled the technical description of that process on the idea of a nuclear chain reaction. And we have these particles in the phaser beams of the ship, nadions, which are fictional particles. Um, and I just said, all right, we're going to establish in this episode that these particles, if they're injected into the you know, iron metal core, iron nickel core of a class M planet, can initiate a chain reaction that will, like a, you know, a nuclear, a nuclear pile in a nuclear reactor, raise the temperature of this very dense metal. Uh, through a chain reaction over the course of a few hours by you know, several hundred degrees. And again, that sounds absurd, but if you think about what really happens in the real world in a nuclear reaction in a, in a nuclear power plant, it's like you've got this sub-microscopic you know, set of invisible particles that you inject into the pile, and they initiate a chain reaction that raises the temperature of this very dense metal Uranium is as dense as lead. That's what it decays into, ultimately, uh, by hundreds of degrees over the course of a couple of hours. People would have thought that was crazy 100 years ago. Nobody would have believed that such a thing were possible. So that's something I always kept in mind when I was, when I was working on these scripts, is if I could find an analogy to something like what really happens in nuclear physics and nuclear power plants, and just take that to the next step, then I thought, well, that's, that's good science fiction because there is, a, there is a logic to it. There is scientific thinking involved. It's a fictional particle, but it's based on something real that people in the past would have thought is crazy. Just like a lot of people today say, oh, warp drive is crazy. You know? Is um, it? No, I don't think so. I think it's, no, I, it's, go ahead. 
technologically beyond anything we can imagine doing today. We can sort of theorize about how it might be done, but 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 100 years from now, who knows? So I wouldn't, I, you know, I, I expanded my horizons quite a bit by working on Star Trek in terms of thinking about what's possible and what's not possible. But the transporter is impossible, right? Am I right? Or transporter not? is depicted on Star Trek, I'd say is impossible. Teleportation may or may not be impossible. Right. But mm -hmm. taking somebody apart atom by atom, turning them into a stream of plasma and then reassembling them at some remote location, I'd say that's, if that's not impossible, it, it would be probably the most ridiculous mode of travel ever invented. <laughs> so uh, even if such a thing were theoretically possible, I'd say, you know what, a lot easier ways to get from a ship in orbit to the surface of a planet, which is why on the Orville, uh, we use shuttles. Yeah, yeah. Dr. McCoy would agree with you, I think. I think so, yes. <laughs> I, I'm and of very... course, you know, Roddenberry did it is because he didn't have the time or the money to land the, the big no, ship every no, week. Exactly, you know? and it was ingenious. And that's what writers have to be. Um, I'm oh. very disappointed your black cat is not named Isis, by the way. I, I know, I, I was going to say, she bears a certain <laughs> resemblance. She uh, is called Kiki, so it's the same number of letters. <laughs> nice. So tell us, in, in closing, and obviously this is a, a huge part of your career, which we're going to gloss over yeah. this time because we're out of time, but um, tell us about the transition from science consultant uh, to uh, writer-producer on, you know, starting with Voyager and then, of course, uh, Enterprise yeah. and then later the Orville and creating your own show. And, you you know, you've done a, a lot of television in the interim. So uh, how, yeah, how... Yeah, you know, it's... Uh, it was gradual. It was a gradual transition. Uh, being the science, science consultant on Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine gave me the opportunity to pitch stories uh, to the show. And, you know, I waited to make sure that they were happy with my job as, you know, the, the way I did my job as science consultant before I went in to pitch stories. So it was six or seven months after I started as the science consultant before I called Jerry Taylor and said, hey, you know, if you guys are looking for stories, I got a couple of things here, you know, and she's, oh yeah, feel free. Let's set up a time, Let's set up a meeting. And so uh, I pitched three stories. Uh, one of them she really liked and she said, oh, I'm going to take this to Michael Pillar. I'm like, oh, that's great. Oh my God. And a week goes by and another week and another week after that. And uh, I finally called her and I said, so did you happen to share that story I, that you liked that I pitched uh, with Michael? Oh yeah, yeah, Michael passed. Oh, and I was devastated. <laughs> well, I went back three months later or so and pitched another set of stories. And she's like, yeah, nothing here is really, you know, floating my boat. Yeah. So every three or four months, you know, I would work on a new set of stories, try to develop something that I thought would work well, you know, for the show that we hadn't done before. I had the great advantage of, you know, reading story documents and scripts and seeing, you know, how these things were developed and getting to understand the structure better, you know, to great education. I'd taken some screenwriting classes, you know, for fun when I was in college. And so that, you know, I had some foundation. But you really learn by doing, you know, and by going in and pitching and dealing with the disappointment of the rejection. And, um, and it took, I think, I, I pitched 15 or 16 stories before they bought the first one. I think it might have been the third season that I was working for them before I sold my first story. And then a month later, they bought another one that I'd pitched earlier that they had kind of put on the back burner and decided, hey, I think we like this one too. And then the next season um, on Voyager, the writing staff was in a pinch. Everybody was busy. They were behind schedule. You know, it was 
more than halfway through the season, I think. And Jerry called me and said, just kind of out of the blue, and she said, you know, we've got a story from a couple of outside writers, but they don't really do teleplays. We're really shorthanded right now. Would you be interested in taking a shot at writing the teleplay for this story? And I'm like, sure. And that was the episode of Voyager Fair Trade, where Neelix is looking for a map to get them through a, a kind of tricky region of space. And he's got a friend on a space station who turns out to be kind of a shady character. So I wrote that teleplay and Jerry thought I did a really good job. And so did the rest of the staff. And, um, and then at that point, I was kind of off to the races. I mean, they liked having me a science consultant, but I was more involved in some story development. I uh, ended up writing or co-writing six or seven episodes of Voyager and, uh, you know, wrote one with Brannon, wrote one with a couple of other people. Um, and so by the time we uh, were developing Enterprise, Brannon said, you know, you know, this has gone on long enough. I, I want you to be on the writing staff full time. So on Enterprise, I started um, as a just a regular staff writer, but was promoted mid-season to story editor. And then the next season was story editor, then executive story editor and co-producer, and then Brandon uh, with a guy named Broggy Schutt and David Goyer sold uh, Threshold after yep. Enterprise. Sure. I, did, I hired a writer-producer on Threshold. And, you know, at that point, I was, uh, you know, getting paid to be a full-time writer-producer guy. Yeah. And after Threshold was canceled, I didn't work for about two years <laughs> until I got a show 11th Hour, which was great. But again, that only went... 15 episodes or something. So, you know, it's been, it's a feast or famine business. And, Absolutely. Uh, and that's a whole, a whole nother st a story that we'll have to explore. Hopefully we'll have you come back and visit us again to talk about your second career, your third career, yeah. really, um, as, a, as a writer no, on I, all these I shows. On, I was on Star Trek altogether for 12 years, <laughs> science consultant, writer, co-producer. And that's, that's, that's the kind of run that people almost never get anymore. No, that's for you know, sure. Cosmos and the Orville are the first shows that I've been on that made it since Star Trek that made it more than one season. Yeah, and, and eleven episodes—that's an interesting order. But let's. Uh, yeah. We want to, you know, we want to thank you for for joining us here on the show. Fascinating stories as always. Always, you're full of great anecdotes, and uh, I want to thank Ashley for once again uh, joining us here on the Trexperts, and uh, you, the audience, and remind you that uh, new episodes of Inglorious at Trexperts are available every Saturday, wherever you listen to uh, podcasts, uh, the 4.30 movie on Fridays, uh, The Rebel and the Rogue, a Star Wars podcast on Tuesdays, and Two on Who is on Thursday, and if you want to watch episodes of Inglorious Trexperts, you can download the new Electric Now app at your favorite app store and watch uh, new shows from uh, electric entertainment as well as all your favorite electric surge podcast so on behalf of myself and darren doctorman keep on trekking and gorgeous of course engage
This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.